Father in heaven, I thank you for this church. And I thank you for this pulpit that represents the ongoing unfolding of the scriptures as they move us toward Jesus week after week. And Lord, no matter the voice addressing this congregation, you are faithful uh, to feed your people who come hungry week after week. Lord, I, th- I thank you for the faithful preaching that a couple of brothers have done in my absence for Seth and for Guy, and now the opportunity simply to take the next step, the next chapter in the book of Daniel. Lord, we are, we are blessed with the leadership we have. We thank you for it. And I ask now, Lord, that you'd help me be a faithful servant of this text and a faithful servant of this congregation. Um, grant us, Lord, the, the miraculous ability to see what's truly here in this text. May we walk away with patterns of thought that are, that are native to Daniel chapter 5, and may we see the shattering importance of it for our lives in the nation in which we live. Lord, the parallels are many. Help us to keep our eyes um, on you as we now dig into Daniel chapter 5. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I will invite you at this time, uh, if you haven't done so, to open a Bible, uh, not to Psalm 36, but to Daniel chapter 5. I chose Psalm 36 because it was a little more uh, bite-sized for a scripture reading. Daniel chapter 5 is uh, expansive, and we will cover the whole chapter this morning, but I invite you to turn to Daniel 5 if you haven't done so. In the Red Bibles, it's 742, 742 to 743 in the Red Bibles. We've been in Daniel since just after Labor Day weekend, and one fascinating aspect of the book of Daniel, you may have noticed as the weeks have gone on, is that certain turns of phrase within the book of Daniel have made their way into English vocabulary, into the workaday English vernacular. Um, For example, when we point out a character flaw in an otherwise celebrated individual, we say that they have feet of clay. Feet of clay, as we learned several weeks ago, that expression has its origins in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 33. That's one example. Another example is the title of today's sermon, Weighed and Found Wanting. That's a saying that you hear from time to time. It speaks not only of a character flaw in a person, but of a complete character failure or collapse in an individual. You have been weighed and you have been found wanting. We'll see Daniel say that to King Belshazzar in a moment. But it's chapter 5, verse 27 in our text. And it's quite possible that the most widespread and commonly used phrase in the book of Daniel in the English language today and in our nation is represented in the subtitle of today's sermon. The handwriting is on the wall. Did you know that came from Daniel chapter 5? The handwriting is on the wall. We use this idiom when we want to speak of impending doom or certain imminent judgment to fall on an individual or an institution. Uh, Novelists from Robert Louis Stevenson to Charles Dickens have used the phrase. Songwriters from Paul Simon to Sting have been fond of this phrase. There's even a unique case of a songwriter quoting a classic 
novelist when 80s rocker John Parr cited Herman Melville's Moby Dick in his own 1985 hit, St. Almost Fire. In the opening lines of St. Almost Fire, Paul Parr writes, Growing up, you don't see the writing on the wall. Passing by, moving straight ahead, you knew it all. Uh, the point is that our own success, frequently giving birth to impetuousness and pride, can blind us to impending disaster that's headed our way. Well, 50 years ago, Billy Graham wrote a book on biblical prophecy entitled World Aflame. And as the story goes, Billy's most faithful editor and chief critic, that would be his wife, Ruth, had finished reading one of the early copy chapters, and after she did so, she walked into his study, set down the stack of papers, and uttered these words, If God doesn't soon bring judgment upon the United States, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Have you heard that phrase before? If God doesn't soon bring judgment upon the United States of America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, others have since been credited with that sobering phrase, D. James Kennedy and John Hagee among them, but the statement isn't original with James or John. It's original with Ruth. She said it about our nation in 1965. That was half a century ago. Many inquiring and discerning minds over the years have asked the question, where is the United States of America in biblical prophecy? You ever wondered that? I mean, we see Israel, we see Iran, we see Iraq, we see Egypt, we see a whole constellation of nations mentioned in Scripture in the last days. How could it possibly be that we don't see America, one of the world's wealthiest and well-armed and well-educated nations in history. How is it possible that we don't figure significantly, even prominently, into the scenario of the last days as depicted in the biblical portrait? Author Joel Rosenberg, in his 2012 book Implosion, offers several scenarios. The financial implosion scenario for our country, the war and terrorism scenario, the natural disaster scenario. His point is, take your pick. Um, I read a poem in preparation for this sermon that reads in part, and it's fitting this time of year, the nights grow colder as the tree becomes older. Autumn the thief has come back around, forcing all the tree's beautiful leaves to the ground. Nothing, it seems, can eternally last. Take, for example, the world's historical past. Caesar no longer stands so tall, for even Rome, in all her glory, had to fall. Ruth Graham, God rest her soul, still is right on the money. If God doesn't soon bring judgment on the United States, he is going to have to issue an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. How much longer do we have? Well, God only knows. But here in Daniel chapter 5, we have at least three clues that alert a nation, any nation, to the handwriting that's on the wall. Let's begin in Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. As I said, if you're using one of the red Bibles in the seats, the text begins on page 742. Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. King Belshazzar 
made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Break off the reading right there. First point today. When a nation and its leaders descend into open idolatry, the handwriting is on the wall. When a nation and its leaders descend into open idolatry, the handwriting is on the wall. Daniel chapter 5 features a new king in Babylon. His name is Belshazzar. And though verse 2 and subsequent references in this chapter position Belshazzar as the son of Nebuchadnezzar, the language here is really that of royal succession rather than blood relation. Belshazzar is actually the biological son of King Nabonidus, who was not a relative of Nebuchadnezzar from the previous chapter. The ESV's footnote on verse 2 is, is really helpful. The word father here means predecessor and so on throughout this chapter. So King Belshazzar, though, not a, though a successor of Nebuchadnezzar, was in no sense his, his inferior as it related to his creative expression of debauchery. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 30 speaks of inventors of evil. You say, well, what would it look like to be an inventor of evil? I, th- I think that Daniel 5 verses 1 and 2 are uh, a, a decent candidate. In other words, those who coin and mint new ways of transgressing and sinning. This phrase fits Belshazzar like a glove. When God gave the Israelites into the hand of the Babylonian armies a generation earlier, Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, says that Nebuchadnezzar stole the vessels of the house of God and he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Nebuchadnezzar was bold. Wouldn't you agree to steal the vessels from the house of God? He was bold to do that, but he was not brassy enough to drink out of them. Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman observes, Belshazzar trifles with Nebuchadnezzar's war booty, loot that Nebuchadnezzar himself apparently thought too precious to actually use. Nebuchadnezzar locked these things away. And Belshazzar opens up the the coffers, as it were. Now, the next the text says that the wine was already flowing in verse 1 and you know how this goes right verse 2 tells us that the idea to use the holy vessels only comes once he has tasted the wine so we can presume that the man's hatching an idea that happens in a drunken stupor this man is not sober and while this may provide an explanation for his actions it in no way 
is an excuse for any of them. Add to all of this verse 4, which says that they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. This was not done in a corner. This is unabashed idol worship in plain view of the nobles and the nation and, of course, God himself. Well, when we think about practical application, what's your assessment? Consider our nation and its leaders. Have we descended into this type of open idolatry before God as a nation? I have no doubt that we have. Though the idolatry is becoming more brazen and stark over the years, the plain fact of the matter is is that the very notion of the American dream itself, a phrase that was coined in 1931, by the way, the very notion of the American dream flirts with the worship of false gods. Financial prosperity, upward social mobility, the constant expectation of success and more and bigger and better, All of this is on a crash course with the kingdom of God in Christ, which is frequently depicted through images of financial generosity, downward mobility, the expectation of rejection instead of the incessant pride that drives the desire for more and bigger and better. There is a relentless humility, content to be faithful with little focusing on depth over breadth and over self-sacrificing love instead of self-centered dream achievement. The American dream, it's a cliche that's so old it doesn't even seem to bother us anymore. How much longer does America have before she implodes? Well, when a nation and its leaders descend into open idolatry, the handwriting is on the wall. Let's continue our story. We'll pick it up in verse 5 and read to verse 12. So verse 5, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me the interpretation shall be clothed with purple and of a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Second point today, when a nation and its leaders exhibit spiritual incompetence, the handwriting is on the wall. When a nation and its leaders exhibit spiritual incompetence, the handwriting is on the wall. In their day, in the golden era of the kings of Israel, though they did not frequently live up to the ideal the kings of Israel were expected to be men of theological fitness as well as practical holiness. In fact, the law of Moses stipulated in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 20, that when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law of Moses approved by the Levitical priests. 
and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Those were the expectations for a king in ancient Israel, writing out their own copy of Torah. Can you imagine it? Daily devotions for the king in the scriptures with he and his family, meditating on and obeying and applying God's word to every practical area of their lives so that they may be exemplary in character among the people, an example of humility, heart not lifted too high before the people of Israel. Such was the job description of Jewish royals. Not so in ancient Babylon. Belshazzar's idolatry isn't uncommon at all, nor is his utter inability to read the handwriting on the wall. Uh, Verse 6, isn't it just uncomfortably vivid? Uh, The king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. This is where the King James Version is actually really helpful to us in painting the picture. Verse 6 in the KJV says, The joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote against one another. One commentator observes, Belshazzar is in extreme distress, perhaps even implying implying by the last clause that he lost control of his most basic bodily functions, which has undermined the position of his composure. I should say so. The king may well have soiled himself. So incontinence, in addition to incompetence, add to this that his advisors were as inept and as bungling as he was in interpreting the writing. Verses 8 and 9 say they could not read the writing or make known the interpretation. His lords were perplexed. And then finally we have the queen. This is an interesting character. She's, She's a little bit... Uh, difficult to know precisely who she is. She may be the queen mother. You have a footnote, say, if you have a, a pew Bible, meaning the widow of the great Nebuchadnezzar. She's at least aware of Daniel's presence in the kingdom, though her description of him is sketchy. No? Verse 11, she says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. So she's trying, right? What is this? This is incompetence. She goes to bat for Daniel, but this is, this is spiritual incompetence. The handwriting is on the wall. What about our nation? We see ourselves in the mirror here. We've said it before, but it bears repeating. Ours is not the promised land in any way, shape, or form. And lo- unlike ancient Israel, our laws do not demand a religious test of any kind for political office nor should it be required to in the strictest sense. And yet, you get who you elect, right? The book of Proverbs is replete with warnings against foolishness and calls leaders to wisdom and holiness, leaders of any nation. Proverbs sixteen twelve: It is an abomination for kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Proverbs 29, 2, When the wicked rule, people groan. Proverbs 29, 12, 
if a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. Now, what I'm going to say here isn't a, a condemnation of a certain leader in particular, as much as it is an observation of our leaders in general. I honestly wonder whether in our country a politically competent, strong leader, rock-solid evangelical Christian could ever win the White House. Ever. It would seem that such a candidate, were their convictions known, would be destined to be dismal in the polls. What does this say about the direction of our country? How much longer does America have before she implodes? Well, when a nation and its leaders exhibit spiritual incompetence, the handwriting is on the wall. And then we come to verses 13 to 16. A brief passage in the narrative, but telling, I think. So, verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that a spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the matter to me. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Third point this morning. When a nation and its leaders treat God's people with insolence, the handwriting is on the wall. When a nation and its leaders treat God's people with insolence, the handwriting is on the wall. Remember now, Daniel is the elder of the two, is he not? And Belshazzar's tone is one of suspicion at least, disrespect and impudence at most. Verse 13, he serves Daniel notice that he in fact is one of the exiles of Judah as if he stood in need of such a reminder. Verses 14 and 16, Belshazzar's not willing to admit that Daniel can read and interpret the writing on the wall. It's all rather, let's wait and see, isn't it? Verse 14, I have heard. Verse 16, I have heard. Again, verse 16, now if you can. Again, author Tremper Longman observes, Belshazzar's flattery is more provisional and his request for interpretation accordingly is conditional. His expectations are not high. And Daniel would not have missed the slight. End quote. Does this happen today to God's people? Everywhere you look. Evangelical Christianity is the linguistic equivalent today of knuckle-dragging Neanderthal. Bible-believing Christ followers are routinely painted in the media in the broader culture as well as bigoted, hostile, narrow-minded folks living in an ugly, bygone narrative that's never going to see the light of day again, holding back our nation from true progress. Now, in view of our Savior's own teaching, we shouldn't expect any different. Uh, Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, verses 24 and 25, a disciple's not above his teacher. 
nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul. How much more will they malign those of his own household? So persecution is bound to come. And if I'm reading this text correctly, though, woe to those through whom it comes. And allow me to add that when we speak of God's people, let us not forget his ancient people. More than one million, excuse me, seven million strong living in the land of Israel today. What God told Abraham in Genesis 12, 3 is just as relevant some 3,000 years later. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Be aware of any cooling in a relationship between any people and God's ancient covenant people. How much longer does America have before she implodes? Well, when a nation and its people treat its leaders, and its leaders treat God's people with insolence, the handwriting is, in fact, on the wall. Well, let's take a look at the fall of Belshazzar and ancient Babylon, because although this story ends desperately, I want to try to inject some gospel hope into it. Verse 17, Daniel responds to Belshazzar. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and who are all, whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then... From his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. 
All I have are some brief observations about these verses as we move to application. Notice in verse 17 Daniel's tone. Let your gifts be for yourself. He's curt, isn't he with him? He's sharp. Daniel's had this kind of conversation with a Babylonian ruler, and he has a sense that he's right, that the handwriting truly is on the wall for this man, that there's going to be no repentance. Notice, too, Daniel's theology, verse 18. The most high gave Nebuchadnezzar. The most high gave Nebuchadnezzar all that he had. This is big God theology. Notice in verse 20, Daniel's focus Daniel's focus. He says that Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up. He dealt proudly. In other words, Daniel's focus is on the perils of pride for a leader and for a nation. Verse 22, notice Daniel's application. He moves right for a sharp application. Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. I think this is why Belshazzar's on the hook. You knew all this. You knew all this. And yet there is an absence of humility and a distinct absence of repentance. And then finally, Daniel's judgment, verses 26 to 28. He says to him, your days are numbered. That's mene, mene. You've been weighed and found wanting. That's tekel. And then your kingdom is divided. Literally, the word peres evidently uh, means divided. And it's also a reference to the Persian kingdom that will take Babylon's place. And Belshazzar is, is killed. This pagan leader killed by the Lord, drunk and dead. The fall of Belshazzar and ancient Babylon. What does this mean for the church today? How do we draw lines of application that are consistent with this passage as well as consistent with the teaching of the broader New Testament? One thing I would encourage you to do is to hop into a community group this week and work those questions. There's a study guide that's set up for all of us to walk through Uh, to begin to roll up our sleeves and apply a text like this in relevant ways. But maybe three applications as we close, anchored in some New Testament texts. What does this mean for the church today? Well, first of all, I would say this. We are not Daniel. Be careful with calls for divine judgment on any nation. Be careful with calls for divine judgment. I'm thinking of Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Right after one of the longest vice lists of the New Testament in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul turns around and says to the believers in Rome, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge, those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume that on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Has our nation descended into open idolatry, exhibited spiritual incompetence, and treated God's people with insolence? Yes, it has. And yet may we be very careful with calls 
for divine judgment. Secondly, be quick to offer the grace of the gospel. Be quick to offer the grace of the gospel. I'm thinking about the promise in James chapter 4, verse 6. We've seen abundant evidence of this, that God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. He opposed Nebuchadnezzar and he opposed Belshazzar. And one of them humbled themselves after he was humbled. God opposes the proud, but what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We ought to be careful with national calls to divine judgment, for we are not prophets. We are Christians. We should be quick to offer the grace of the gospel. Will our nation implode in short order? Possibly, but it may explode with revival if the church prays for it and acts for it and offers the grace of the gospel to spark it. So be quick to offer the grace of the gospel. Third, be constant in prayer for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Be constant in prayer for the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's the final promise of the Bible followed by the final prayer in Scripture. Revelation 22.20 He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. That's in red letters. I am coming soon. And the response is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So be careful with calls for divine judgment. Be quick to offer the grace of the gospel and be constant in prayer for the second coming of Christ. When a nation and its leaders descend into open idolatry, undoubtedly the handwriting is on the wall. When a nation and its leaders exhibit spiritual incompetence, the handwriting is on the wall. When a nation and its leaders treat God's people with insolence, the handwriting is on the wall. No nation, no empire, no kingdom is eternal except for the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. When will our nation see its final last days? God only knows with certainty. But this much is sure. Apart from his grace, the handwriting's on the wall. So pray for our nation. Pray for its leaders especially. Get educated. Be involved in the political processes of our country. Be involved. Don't just let them happen to you. Don't you have a tendency, a temptation to watch these debates like you watch reality TV today? Don't do that. We reap what we sow. So pray for our leaders. Pray for their conversions. Be involved in the political process of our country as much as God is calling you to do so. And above all else, seek to share the gospel. Make much of Jesus. Be hopeful that the Holy Spirit still convicts the world of its guilt that the Father will and is drawing people to His Son. And pray for open doors to share the good news with those who don't yet know Christ. 
Jesus is truly building his church. Even while cultural Christianity collapses all around us, Jesus is building his church. May God soon irrevocably judge our nation? Yes, he may. Yes, he may. But he may also pour out rivers of revival. Let's be prepared for the former, but let us pray with all our heart for the latter. Amen? Let's pray.